Hello and welcome. My name is Amrita Dhar and I am the director of the project Shakespeare in the Post Colonies, which is hosting a series of interviews with post-colonial Shakespeareans from around the world. In today's conversation, our invited collaborator, Professor Christopher Thurman of the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, speaks with the South African actor, singer, dancer and translator, Annalisa Fewa. Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Thurman. I am the director of the Tikinia Shaka Center, a research unit at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, with a satellite office in Somerset West, uh, down in the Western Cape, which is where uh, I am currently speaking from. Uh, and the person I'm speaking to is, in fact, based in Johannesburg. He is Annalisa Pewa. He is the resident artist at the Tsikinia Shaka Center for 2022, amongst uh, many other things we could tell you about him. But rather than hearing about that from me, let me ask Annalisa to introduce himself. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. I think professionally, I am an actor. I am an educator. I'm a student. I am the director of a drama consultancy in South Africa called Dramatech, and I am a father to a five-year-old girl. I think that about sums it up. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. We'll, we'll unpack all of those different identities as the conversation proceeds. Later on, I'm sure we can talk about your student identity, your master's research project, and the work that you are doing into the translation and performance of Shakespeare's sonnets in Isizulu. And we can talk about your teaching identity and your work with uh, other students and uh, young actors. But maybe for now, we should dial things back, dial back the clock to uh, your own upbringing, because part of the point of reference for this series of conversations is the educational context in which young learners encounter uh, Shakespeare in, let's call it, post-colonial or global South. Did you come to Shakespeare outside of school in the curriculum? While you were still a, a high school student, did you explore Shakespeare beyond the curriculum? Did you know then that you were going to be an actor? These are many questions I have. I'd love to get to know uh, adolescent and teenage Annalisa a bit better. <laughs> uh, adolescent Annalisa was already quite the experienced actor. I started acting when I was four. So by the time I entered high school in grade eight, I was definitely familiar with the boards, as it were, but I wasn't familiar with the bard yet. It was mm -hmm. only in grade 10 that I first encountered Romeo and Juliet, and it was gorgeous. I really enjoyed it. It was so musical for me, and I wanted to unpack it, you know, because there, there was something about the speech that was sing-songy, but in the sing-song, I lost the sense, and you had archaic words that we didn't quite understand and the meaning. So it felt like a, a little bit of a, a word puzzle. For me. And I took it on that way as I was studying it and finding the differences between the speeches and just how people are communicating. I really enjoyed that journey. 
So we did Romeo and Juliet in grade 10, King Lear in grade 11, and we did Hamlet in grade 12. That was my exposure to them, but not from a performance point of view. That was just from a, a literature's point of view, just getting familiar with the text and themes and the universality of the human experience and how it was captured by Shakespeare back then, you know, and, and all of those themes that still <laughs> persist today. But in Varsity, I took on Shakespeare from a more performance point of view, but that was in second year where I took on Hamlet again. I still remember the speech that I did was, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into, into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. <laughs> you know, a little snippet over there. Did that in second year. It blurs into my professional <laughs> repertoire as well, because then after Varsity with Maynard Verl, the Shakespeare Festival over there, did a comedy of errors. I did Twelfth Night, I did A Midsummer Night's Dream, then Hamlet again. So in in that whole mess, uh, I've, I've been been working with Shakespeare for a couple of years now. Fantastic. My sense is that for people of perhaps your and my generation, to do Shakespeare was to, as you put it earlier, to be introduced to something that you were understood to accept as a universal truth kind of universal text that you could imbibe for your own uh, edification and self-improvement. And you would now have access to a kind of globally shared knowledge, which would be good for you. Take your Shakespeare like medicine. South Africa has many different educational contexts that range from highly resourced to, to deeply under-resourced. And that has an impact on Shakespeare teaching and learning as well. And also, of course, that some learners will encounter Shakespeare through a first language English curriculum. Those who are not taking English as a first language are less likely to encounter uh, Shakespeare as part of their school experience nowadays. And of course, there's a wider discussion around the presence of Shakespeare on the curriculum at school level at all, a conversation that rears its head in, in South Africa every few years. I guess we can hope that things are a little bit different in some schooling context in South Africa, a shift from text to appreciation of Shakespeare as performance or for performance, and maybe a wider sense of the critical discussions around colonial literary legacies. And I guess we could hope a South African high school student now being introduced to a kind of critical reflection on what enter, enters into the curriculum uh, and why they're engaging with it. Although I think quite often that is not the case. So maybe that's idealistic on my part. But maybe this is a very long and roundabout way of asking you about the shift from the universal, let's call it, to the particular or the global to the local. Uh, and your sense of when Shakespeare became to you a way of engaging specifically with your world and your environment and with South Africa, uh, rather than a way of accessing a kind of putatively universal experience. Hmm. <laughs> when I look at how we learned Shakespeare, or at least our first encounter with it, we, we encountered Shakespeare in English class. And it was always very enjoyable for me. And I guess for the rest of the class, because <laughs> that's where a lot of my classmates would sleep. Because we're listening, our teacher would do a reading. And it was, it was quite interesting because we are now experiencing the play as an audience, but it's a play reading. But she would play all the different characters. I thought she was very good. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it became a radio drama for me. So it was still a lived-in experience. And from her interpretation, you could hear... So, for example, when she said Nanko, the fool in King Lear references Lear himself. 
as nuncle. That stood out for me because it was a weird word. It's close enough to, to an English word, but then there's that strange N at the beginning. And we paused and, and we asked, what is that reference? And she broke it down and sort of spread it out. And it, it, it was an, an expression of mine uncle, but then abbreviated becomes nuncle. So we have this living dictionary that we can interact with, hear the story, talk about it, ask questions. So it was, it was very thorough for me. And maybe that points to um, a certain type of educational system. I mean, there were only 20 of us in the class. It was an IEB, that's an independent examination board uh, school, which is an independent examiner separate from government institutions and other private institutions. In terms of my familiarity, that was my experience. And then however many years later now, I'm dealing with a current student who is a performer and part of his school's program was to, it's called AMP, the Amateur Mentor Program. And what I'm doing over there is as an individual, as a professional actor who has worked with Shakespeare, I'm mentoring a, a matriculant or a grade 11 student who is a performer who is transitioning across into, as a performer is moving from slam poetry and rhythmic poetry and all of those different types of poetry and we are going into the heightened text and they are using a mode of education that is performance-based, but they're also aligning him with a professional who understands the material, who understands being a performer in metric and they are doing it this way. Shakespeare is great in that he can translate the ideas across, but the ideas themselves are universal. Today, what's our pillar and what's our reference? And from a structural point of view, we know that he's got these various toys that he plays with to craft his, his material, you know, from the language to the rhyming couplets to the quatrains, all of that, breaking it up, putting it together, feminine endings, masculine endings. You know, he's got all of these tools that he plays with to identify a style, but the style is communicating about the world that he's living in because that's essentially all we can really do, right? And yet we still have his work as verbal architecture that we can use, you know, because for example, you talk about the physicality of the sonnet form. Now, the sonnet form is just 14 lines and a metric structure, quatrains and um, a rhyming couplet. But I can completely speak in that format without the heightened Elizabethan speech because it's a technical it's a technical form that he used to get his ideas across. So really this is just a commentary on my internal landscape interacting with my external landscape and the friction between the two. So is Shakespeare relevant today? I think so, just from a time reference, but also from a if, imagine Shakespeare as a, a skateboarder or, uh, yeah, he, he, he had this little handbook of all these tricks that has survived. So we can add on to that. We don't have to necessarily continue writing in the heightened form, but we can keep the structures. For example, with my work that I'm doing with the translation, I'm keeping the form, but I'm working in a different language. So I've learned from him, but I have taken on my own idea toward that expression. I want to push you a little bit more on that word friction, which you introduced earlier. And I guess 
what for many people in a South African context, post-colonial context, global South context, is a kind of conflict with Shakespeare. Not necessarily with Shakespeare the writer, Shakespeare the man, Shakespeare the body of work, but with Shakespeare as symbol. And in particular, in our context, our multilingual South African context, Shakespeare's English and its economic capital, its social capital, its association with, with our colonial history in South Africa. So when you are thinking, and you've, you've talked about your work both as translator and as teacher, so you very helpfully connected for me the dots from you as student to you as teacher, you as uh, performer in training to you as professional performer and creative practitioner. We're going to fill in the gap between those two with the question a bit later. But for now, how do you as a black South African performer in 2022 see yourself navigating those questions? Is it irrelevant to you? Are the questions of race and history that come with language necessarily embedded in your translation practice when you're reflecting on translating sonnets into Isizulu and you're thinking about the implications of performance of what is traditionally seen as kind of lyric or poetic texts and you're thinking about the sonnet in performance are you really thinking in the technical terms purely that you've been describing or is there could I call it a kind of ideological political aspect to that practice Maybe I'm coming from a privileged point of view. I think I am. So for me, I don't identify with the problem as such. For me, it's, it, Shakespeare is a technical exercise without race because there's a how-to. And that really comes from the myth of language. My argument to myself and to my students, I'll argue that language doesn't exist. And I'll argue that what exists, and maybe this is coming from a, an actor's point of view, there's the spirit that feels and the spirit that feels sends the, the feeling to, to the cerebral, and the cerebral connects those ideas outward through an agreement where I am hungry. It's a feeling first, and then I've taken these sounds and I've constructed a language that we agree upon to communicate this idea so that we may survive. So coming from that sort of <laughs> point of view, I, I don't really struggle with the idea of language because I understand language as just um, a transactional sort of interaction, but it does reflect culture, right? So for example, when I do translate, I do look to try and keep the iambic pentameter, that rhythmic structure that, is, that defines that Elizabethan poetry. And with the sonnet, I'll keep the physical form that is 14 lines so that it looks the same. But then when I change the language, the musicality remains. So that my grandmother says, my goodness, my boy, what a beautiful way to say that. And that way of saying it, I'm trying to keep the beauty and the musicality and all of the things that make Shakespeare mesmerizing to us. But all he's saying is, my goodness, what a beautiful day. What a beautiful girl you are. And if I could do it, I would compare you to, to that. It's a lot more eloquent. And I guess that's what it's more poetic that way. And I try to keep the sense of the poetry and I'm moving it from one cultural understanding to another, from Shakespeare to my grandmother's ear. And I am privileged enough to know both languages well enough, technically enough, to superimpose those elements onto that. So for me, there is no real friction, but I know that some people do struggle with it because they feel oppressed by it. But that's from um, 
an understanding and a, ling a linguistic point of view where they say, why can't we study this? Why must we study that? We want to see ourselves and this is not us, right? That's a, a kind of global tribalism that says, I want to shine my own culture and language and forms of expression as opposed to taking on this difficult, irrelevant form. Because generally when you are given Shakespeare, he's usually imposed upon you. You generally have to do it, you know, so it feels forced. And I guess maybe from a point of view there, it feels like just another thing that you have to do and people then generally develop an attitude towards it. But for me, it's craft. You know, a friend of mine said, what, what is the use of um, Shakespeare today? And I said to him, he says, you're a film actor. What does it make sense? I said, I can copy the structure, the musicality of the structure into a closer sentence. And I still have the sentence. The sentence is, There's a rhyming couplet of it, but it's in closer. But in between, there's a musicality that is more akin to hip-hop, that if I can ride it, you will get the sense through the musicality, because I'm familiar with the structural pillars that exist within all languages, because all languages, again, just reflect that inner being, that inner spirit that has taken on these sounds to create these forms of meaning. So I don't have any tension. It's really interesting to think about music because I just had in mind, as you were talking about musicality, your translation of Sonnet 116 into Isizulu, in which I think you subvert the traditional tone of that sonnet through music, creating a much more kind of mournful atmosphere and one that sort of undermines the slightly cliche, you know, lovelorn figure. And I wonder if uh, you could do two things for us. One might be to just to revisit that those closer lines, that couplet, to tell us a little bit about that interlingual movement and what those lines actually signify. And then perhaps to talk a little bit about your self-recorded, self-translated and musically self-accompanied version of Sonnet 116. There are two languages there. So the one was a Tosa translation and the other was a Zulu translation. So the lines that I just spoke were Tosa lines and, and Tosa has a different musicality to Zulu. They're both Nguni languages, but they have different tones. And I'm able to flip between the two because my mother's Tosa, my father is Zulu. That was complicated, but I have access to both languages. So yes, this was in a series that I played in and the sentence means was What do you know about Nongasa's wishes? Um, the, the test of faith is not going to stop because you find her irresistible. Right. So looking at it as a Zulu speaker speaking closer, I had to find all the technical means to, to bring sense to that. Keep it musical, but also keep it within the character's emotional frame of reference and to chide his younger brother. So there's a lot of layering that is happening up there. So I can attack it the way a rapper would. There's a, an attitude there as well. And the words that he calls it, it's actually heightened as well because Nonda Chaza is actually a very derogatory term for prostitutes. 
And this is a girl that he loves. So my character is doing a lot of things, using heightened poetry to slam his younger brother down from a place of status. And he uses that language to echo that idea, you know. And he won't be questioned because he's a, he's a figure of the church as well. So all of that language comes together to represent that idea of oppression within that moment. Talking about the poem now, the sonnet is a Zulu translation. I kept the physical form of it the same, like I'd said, the 14 lines. I kept to the quatrains and then the rhyming couplet. And what I was doing over there was that as an actor, you have to interpret um, the material that you perform. So it's not just to say, I'm going to learn these lines and I'm going to just be very good at it. What is my interpretation? And within that story, I'm speaking, the, the character is speaking the idea of, well, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remove to remove. And I was testing the, the authenticity of these words through this character who is waking up alone. He's sleeping. So in his dream, in my interpretation, there, there are two figures in African garb, beautiful. It was a painting. And they are moving away. He wakes up. He wakes up alone. You know, and, and, and I'm echoing these words that, you know, true love is this and true love is that. It doesn't move away. It doesn't behave in this way. And it lasts. And it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. And yet this man's love is not that. He's lost it. So what was the authenticity of his love? You know, so he's reflecting in her absence that, well, I guess she loves me not. I wasn't translating word for word, but rather the feeling of, the, I mean, when I speak the language now and then I interpret that into English again, you'll hear the words are different because I'll say, And that means nothing compares with true love. And you cannot argue that. No one can. But those are different words to let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. But emotionally, it means the same thing. For me, in my interpretation, I can stand behind that, you know. But then I also use cultural signifiers that make sense for an African people. Because what is a tempest to my grandmother who lives in Africa? An ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Those are references that reflect a different side of the world for us. The side of the world that does experience tempests that we would make sense of in terms of that one reference. But I say to her, Kabo, oh no. Kabo, lena imbogoto, insimbi aikodu. Imbogoto is a rock. They'll say, it's a rock. It is a, is a thing that we know that signifies strength. Right, but here's another idiom there. It is a red hot poker that doesn't bend in CMB. I go in a quieter song, they'll say something like, and what they're saying over there is, you know, a piece of metal, it is strong, and this is it. And I use that as a reference because the people that I'm speaking to understand this context more than the context that was pointed out by a man who lived 400 years ago. So he was talking about his context with his people in his language. And I'm talking to my people in my language about the context of what he was talking about, but because what he was talking about is still relevant today. I'm still heartbroken. I am still sad. <laughs> you know, I still feel all that I feel. And I can use these words as um, a form of expression 
to purge this feeling, to validate that this is a true thing. He felt it, I felt it, they will feel it tomorrow. Therefore, I have a place today, here now. But how I communicate those ideas is the difference. Because ultimately, I'll argue is that it's in a human being that feels first before we send um, our emotions up to our heads to, to become the, the agreed upon language or form of expression. That's fascinating. I'm just struck as you're talking by, in some ways, the what is enabled by the fact that that's a, effectively a kind of solo project, right? So you are communicating with a very widespread audience, making lots of sophisticated articulations between languages and cultural points of reference. And there's something very exciting about your sonnet project, which is enabled by that as, let's call it, solo work. But of course, most of your TV and stage and film work has been as part of an ensemble or a cast. You've been involved in some very interesting experiments. For example, I think about the three-man Richard III some years ago. You've also been in Midsummer Night's Dream that I've I've seen you, and we've also talked about your Romeo and Juliet. But I'd love to go back a few years to your um, early professional experiences and your time, for example, at Maynardville. You spoke about doing quite a bit of Shakespeare at Maynardville. For those who are unfamiliar with Maynardville, it's an outdoor Shakespeare in the Park type theatre, an annual summer performance in Cape Town, goes back over 50 years or so, the tradition. And so like many traditions has both pros and cons. Some would say the cons are a certain way of doing Shakespeare. Shakespeare in the Park often comes with a certain set of aesthetics, or maybe we could say assumptions about politics. It's complicated in the history of Maynardville. But the pros, of course, have been this annual tradition that people look forward to, which unfortunately was disrupted by COVID. And, and other financial factors. Tell us a little bit about your, your time there and how you think that might have, have shaped your experience as an actor. Well, when I was studying at UCT, we all knew about the main Oval production. In fact, it was one of the productions that when you finish, it was the show that you went and auditioned for because some people would graduate and then star in in the in the main of the production so it was something that we highly anticipated having done the final year fourth year production where i mean i played laertes in in our hamlet that my in my final year in prep for maynardville so it, it is a tradition even within the drama school where we are working towards being technically proficient enough to compete Incidentally, when I graduated in 2005, I auditioned for the Maynardville. It was Jeffrey Highland who was directing Twelfth Night. And that was a fantastic production. I mean, I got in there. It, Jeremy Crutchley was there, Robin Scott, Neil Adam, Nicholas Ellenbogen. It was quite a feat to join this production. And I got mentioned in, in, the, in the review as well, you know, it's young man holding his own against <laughs> all of these people who are doing such great work. And it was good for me to be in the space to see how other people work, how they deliver, how they attack it. And also just that communal space of how to keep the rhythm as a company alive, even in the pauses, even in the changes, you know, from a technical point of view. And I really enjoyed that. I'm a technician. So you'll keep hearing me say, technical from from time to time but it was very good for me and I got to understand the language a lot more just in terms of the continuity between characters where you look at the enjambment lines or lines that join each other and finish off and different endings and jokes and setting up I mean it was good for me but yeah it was part of my accumulation 
I guess. And and I guess the the one I really want to talk about is the online Hamlet because I think that's got more translingual politics, if you will. So for listeners who are not familiar with it, this is a production of Hamlet that was initially conceived for the stage at the Fugard Theatre in Cape Town and was going to be produced in 2020 and did not occur inevitably. But it did have a life. It had a life as a Zoom production that was very carefully styled and very particularly rehearsed by the cast so that it had a kind of coherent aesthetic and so that the stage world that had been imagined as part of the production was still conveyed, if only in a a kind of narrative voiceover as part of the Zoom production. So a really interesting experiment. What could you say were the the key differences between your previous work, either as an actor on the screen for camera on film and TV, or an actor on the stage, now finding yourself in this kind of in-between space? Again, when I talk to my students, I say to them, there is only theatre and then different reflections of it, if you will, in that even if this is a filmed situation and you are on the other side of the camera filming this, I am still in the physical space and I must still interact with the physical space and conjure up all of that artistry that reflects life to to communicate that meaning across. The only thing that changes is the medium and that's just an amplification. But being in that space, I recognized two things. So we had a black backdrop. We used ring lights and we were dressed in black. So there was already a theatrical aesthetic there because I felt very much as if I were backstage and coming back on and, you know, but I was also very acutely aware of the fact that I am playing for film because I'm playing through medium. There is a camera, there's an interaction, but there is still a world that I am interacting in. So there's the technical placement of who we are talking to and how we play dialogue. But the idea for me was that because I am in a world, interacting with people, in a world, but through the phone, I could also cheat them into my space, you know, sort of superimpose, flip the fourth wall to make it that side and bring my entire world here where then I'm playing with things like eyeline, where if I'm looking directly at the camera here, if I'm talking to Claudius, now I've placed him there. Now might I do it better, now I'll do it, right? Because now I'm using audience as confidant from a filmic point of view, you know, you, you see me and I'm in my own head over here. I come to you. I come to this world. But it's all still within a, a theatrical, filmic uh, world. I found that interesting. But what I enjoyed more so was the negotiation of the royal household. Because the royal household, funny so was Tossa, is Tossa. David, who plays Gertrude, is Tossa speaking. David Dennis is of color descent but he is also Kosa speaking. And because I can speak both Zulu and Kosa, it made sense for me to just jump ship and go to them so that we keep a continuity within the cultural house, the royal house, so that there aren't any, any conflicts. Then anybody else could come in with any other thing, but the royal house was Kosa. But Kosa is not my first language. So negotiating the lines to find the rhythm placement because the one line moves in English within its own flow. I must find it, meet it with a different language in the flow, not lose anybody, but then still lead it to the next place where 
there's a negotiation between the language that fit into the rhythmic structures, but still add some cultural flavor, nuance, but don't take away from the original text. And that negotiation was very cool because we improvised our feeling, negotiated with each other, and then it was still sent to a, a linguistic support structure. Fundile Majola, I think, did some of the Correct. closer translations with yes. Bute and Gaba. Yes. Absolutely. So then they took the work that we had negotiated and translated, and they then brought it back to us once it was fixed and edited and made nice. And then we would then learn that and then perform that. So we interacted with it, but then it came back refined. We were able to learn and deliver that as well. And I found that entire process really, really exciting. Because also I was static, but the language has so much movement and my frame is only this big. So there was a lot of stuff to deal with. And I'm reading <laughs> on top of it because it was a play reading. I think what's interesting about that production is that no one was quite sure what the genre was. Are we watching a staged reading? Are we watching a kind of rehearsed work in progress? Partly, And part of the, the kind of achievement, I guess, of it was precisely that uncertainty. It was initially envisaged by the director, Neil Coppen, and, and subsequently in his work with, with his co-directors, Butler Ngaba and Bianca Amato, very much as a, a South African hamlet. And as you say, you spoke about the royal household and a strong emphasis on South African languages as part of the character traits, we could say, of some of the characters. And the set that had been imagined and was described by the voiceover narrator figure speaks about very specific South African symbols. And so that is a production that kind of declares itself a South African hamlet, which I think we could compare to something like The Three Man Richard III, which had very interesting use of props and costuming for the sake of the, the kind of doubling and tripling that you were doing as, as three performers playing a full set of characters, but was still broadly in what we could call, I guess, period dress, kind of imagining the medieval rather even than the early modern world. And those to me seem like they're not just aesthetic choices, but they also must come surely with some kind of claim about or commitment to either the local or the global, the particular or the universal. I would say that on the one hand, you've presented to us Annalisa Pewa, the theatre maker, musician, orator, performer, who enjoys, as you've said, the technicalities of playmaking and staging, but also of particular verse forms. And in, in some ways sees that as the primary structure and the, the particular language, whether it's Shakespeare's early modern English or contemporary Isikosa or Isizulu, as secondary, as you've said, kind of making language secondary. So that, I suppose, draws a more clear line of continuity between Shakespeare's context and our own, thinking about genre, thinking about the plays and even the plots, but the characters, but also the technicalities of the language as a kind of placeholder. Whereas other aspects of our conversation, when we talked a little bit about high school learners tuning out of the, the school experience or feeling a bit alienated from the work or people who are not able to relate to the language or the cultural idiom of Shakespeare's plays and and but benefit from and enjoy uh, adaptation and translation into something that's specific. Again, we have the strand that says, well, there is a difference or a gap or a conflict there that needs to be somehow resolved. Do you see yourself more as the inheritor of Shakespeare, continuing a, a tradition that you see as 
more or less uninterrupted, despite its imbrication in, in colonial histories? Or do you see yourself as trying to take up a mantle of localization, translation, adaptation, uh, etc.? Or is that an unfair position to put you in having to choose between them? I think it's an interesting position to be in because we're part of a conversation. And for me, if I look at just those two examples, already there's a vast difference we're looking at. So the Three Man Richard III references very definitely an old school period kind of pure poetry, you know, for the elite. But we are working on the cleanliness and the accessibility, but you have to be familiar with the material and you have to be a keen observer, observer in terms of listener, as it were versus the online Hamlet, which is already playing within cross-lingual spaces. But also, part of the problem is that we don't know what you're saying. So one of my things being in film was that I took the size of Shakespeare and I reduced it for the camera. And part of that is bringing the idea of intimacy, the confidant, the clarity of speech, what is actually bothering me. Without the to be or not to be, I'm here with my own problem. All I'm saying really is, guys, don't know what to do. Shall I kill myself or shall I not? Well, which is better? That's the tone that I'm speaking that heightened text, to be or not to be. That is the question. What is the question? Whether to snobler in the mind, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. Speaking the same lines, breaking up the iambic a little bit to try and bring this meaning, this problem to you. So I have no problem with Shakespeare, nor, nor do I feel <laughs> I'm worthy to take up his mantle, but definitely to be the bridge across, to say the man was saying this. It's not that complicated, but all you have to do is look for it. And you don't have to look for it. That your doctor studied medicine for 12 years, you know. Uh, <laughs> your, your doctor studied for 12 years. You can consult with him at 250 rand for, for that. He will explain to you what's aiming. Same thing. We studied the drama. We're the custodians. We, we, we stand here for you and we bring it across in performance. You must understand us and you must have an experience within this performance. To reflect on yourself because you matter. We perform to validate your experience. Maybe. So there's a lot of work to That's be done, cool. but um, we're trying to bring people closer to each other globally, yeah. from the global to the singular. <laughs> that feels like a very powerful note to end on as a, not just a manifesto, but a kind of proud declaration of what it is that actors and theater makers and filmmakers can do and do for us as audiences, as consumers, for want of a better word, which is an opportunity to make a final observation, which is the economic infrastructure of theatre making and filmmaking in South Africa. But just to kind of note that it is a truism accepted, I guess, in South Africa that, that theatre makers and filmmakers, whether they're doing Shakespeare or they're doing you know anything else, um, are up against it in terms of a kind of resource-thin environment. Uh, and so that becomes a, a kind of overlay, but also, I guess we could say, the difficult foundation on which so many performers are working. And so to hear your both your beautiful evocation of, of Shakespeare's words, but also your, I think, quite uh, accurate and strident description of what it is that theatre makers 
do and always have done, which is to connect, to be the bridge, to bring us closer to some kind of truth or closer to things that we battle to understand is really, really powerful. So, Annalisa, thank you for the privilege of listening to you discussing your work. It's been a great pleasure listening to you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to this podcast, spread the word and leave a review. Do take a look also at our project website at shakespearepostcolonies.osu.edu for materials supplementing this conversation and for further project details. Thank you for listening and until next time. For the Shakespeare in the Post Colonies project, I am Omrita Thor.